0: Okay, from one and all, I'm going to open with the chant and we'll jump right in. <laughs> Om Namasri Yatirajaya Vivekananda Suraye Satchit Sukaswarupaya Swamine Tapaharine Om Shanti 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 Om salutations to Swami Vivekananda that sage and seer that prince amongst renunciants salutations to the embodiment of consciousness bliss absolute that world teacher Om may this be an offering to all teachers who following in the wake of Swami Vivekananda have exemplified the highest ideals of spiritual integrity Om Peace 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 Om Tatsat. I thought it would be nice to invoke Swami Vivekananda beginning this lecture because there's never I think been a better example of a world teacher with integrity than Swami Vivekananda and also because in his Bhakti Yoga, a series of lectures he gave that is now published in that book Bhakti Yoga, um, he talked about what it is to be a guru. Like what makes a spiritual teacher a spiritual teacher? In other words, how do you tell the false guru or the rogue teacher or the sham teacher apart from the genuine teacher? And this is an important conversation to have because I just saw in the Q&A, Lina asked a very good question. She asked, how do you prevent getting exploited in spiritual life? I mean, guru yoga seems dangerous. Exalting someone to the position of like God, which is essentially what guru yoga is, seeing God in your teacher. That sounds like there's a lot of potential for abuse, right? I mean, if someone really does feel like they're God, won't they use that to, I don't know, exploit others in all sorts of ways? And certainly, that's what history has shown us um, time and time again in the West, particularly. Now, in India, for the most part, guru yoga has been going on for centuries and centuries and centuries. And for the most part, it's been a very powerful practice for both teacher and student alike. But that is not to say that there aren't instances in which it does go wrong as we've seen in recent years, especially with like fallen gurus and, you know, um, charlatans posing as gurus, especially to a Western audience, which which doesn't really have the grounding or the context to understand the difference between a charlatan and a genuine teacher. And so I thought we had that conversation a bit today. We've already had that conversation in two different ways. There was a lecture we gave maybe two years ago, maybe one, maybe a year ago, maybe two years ago, I forget now. But that lecture was called uh, The Genuine Guru and How to Spot a Fake." Do you remember? It's called the genuine. And so the the thumbnail, the picture for that lecture is Swami Vivekananda, like seated in meditation, the exemplar guru, the Jagat Acharya, teacher of the world. And because, like I just said, he actually does have a really important piece on guru yoga and qualifications of a guru that appears in bhakti yoga. And so that class was predominantly about that. Now, even before that class, um, we had a lecture called What is the Guru? And that appeared in our Journey into Tantra series. Do you remember? We did a kind of like, I don't know, it was like a 36-part series exploring some foundational ideas in the Tantric tradition as a whole in order to kind of prepare our audience for maybe a deeper study of texts like the Shema Raja Pratyabhikya Hirdaya or or Vigyanabhairava like that. So before we actually started doing verse by verse commentaries of the tantras, both in its exegetical form, like as commentaries, and also in its primary source form as the tantras themselves, before we did any of that, we actually did a kind of exploratory series, you know, just kind of talking about the foundational principles. And there, since Guru Yoga is such a big part of tantra, there we offered the first kind of, I would say, if I can, some kind of comprehensive analysis about guru yoga. What makes a guru a guru? And we really like rigorously cited the kularnava Tantra, the Malini Vijayotara Tantra. Like there, we looked at the actual source text. We looked at the Sanskrit and we carefully considered what guru yoga is within the context of the tradition. If misunderstood, guru yoga can go awry. If properly understood, it can be one of the most revolutionary and powerful practices in your sadhana. And it's of course, the heart of Indian spirituality and also of Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox spirituality. In fact, I will say that in all mystical traditions, the personal intimate relationship between teacher and student is stressed. Just like you can never really learn heart surgery from watching YouTube videos. What more when it comes to, can you imagine you go to the hospital and you're about to get a surgery and then you ask your doctor, so where do you learn? Who is your teacher and your doctor? says, Oh, I don't really believe in teachers. Gurus, why? I don't believe in that. I, I just learned on YouTube. It's enough, right? I just watched a bunch of videos. I, I can do the surgery. I mean, I'm competent. You know, isn't that weird? Nobody that in our society, that would never fly. Nobody would like allow that to be. Also driving. You know, ask someone, how'd you learn to drive? Oh, I just, I don't believe in gurus. I, I never had a driving instructor. I just figured it out on my own. What? No, you had to go to a driving school. Somebody had to teach you, your parent or your guardian or some instructor. Um. Once I was at this like gathering at my, one of my students' mom's house, my high school student. And so I went to, his, one of his parties. And I was talking to this guy who was like incredibly jaded about gurus, having grown up in like the sixties or whatever. And he saw like the problem of guru yoga, which certainly exists. One must you know, definitely concede that. But having seen that he now believes that you don't need gurus for spiritual life. No, no, I I can do it all myself. So I asked him, what does he do? He said, Oh, I'm an actor. And I said, "Um, okay, did you go to acting school? He said, yes. I said, did you have teachers? And then he was like, I see what you're doing, but it's different. And I asked him, why is it different? And he wasn't able to prove it. He got angry and walked away. But I think it's a very important point. I noticed that here in our culture, we have teachers for every other thing in our life. And we recognize the need of teachers, right? I know. I mean, no one has annoyed me more than that man, actually. Because for some reason, his stuff is just like, it's so like, okay, I don't want to get into it. But it's like this like theosophist kind of, you know... um, Con- confounding voice in Indian spirituality. I don't know, I'm just gonna say, it. no one say the name, okay? I don't want to like on the recording. I don't want anyone to know. Like, like I don't mean to single anyone out, but let's just clear shit up, okay? Let's in in the in the noise. Let's make sure we can go to the source, look at the literature, and clear things up to the best of our ability. So, in any case. This idea about like not needing a guru, it's just so off the wall to me. You know, it's so far from not only the Indian ethos of spirituality, but any mystical tradition. If you read the way of the pilgrim, you'll see the most important thing I would argue in that text is when our character, the pilgrim, the Russian pilgrim, meets his elder, his guru, who instructs him in the way of the the japa you know is a jesus prayer shows him how to do the jews prayer and and tune it to his heart like that and he constantly goes to his mentor and he's being you know guided that way so in all spiritual traditions we have this emphasis on the guru right and it's not just in spirits in driving in acting in cooking in everything you need a teacher what more for spiritual life okay it's one of the hardest things in the world to do to overcome the basic human drive to like involve ourselves in things that are not fulfilling. This this deep discipline that is required for spiritual life, you'll only be able to learn that from transmission from a teacher. So a direct lineage is required and also a close relationship with the teacher is required. However, that necessarily means that we have to navigate false teachers and charlatans and exploitative people who are posing as our teachers. So how do we do that? I think the verse that we're going to study now in the Bhakti Sutra of Narada tells us just how we can do that, just how we can protect ourselves from sham and charlatan teachers. And it's also a good instruction for teachers. Um, you know, the tantras are full of qualifications for teachers, like in the Malini Vijayatara, it says what a guru, like what qualities a guru should have. Swamiji, Swami Vekananda, in his article on the guru that appears in Bhakti Yoga, he also gives a few qualifications for the guru. Kula Anava Tantra also, um, verse after verse explains what a guru is. And the Kula Arnava Tantra says, gurus are hard to find. Huh? Like there, there are thousands of people Pretending to be a guru. Very few of them are genuine gurus. And then he goes even further. Actually, no, gurus are easy to find. What's hard to find is a good disciple. Because <laughs> everybody wants to be a guru, not anybody wants to be a disciple. So the Kular nava Tantra makes that very cute tongue in cheek point. No, no, no. <laughs> gurus are easy to find. Disciples, not so much. <laughs> anyway, so there is literature on it, right? Kular nava Tantra, Malini vijaya Tantra, and several other tantras. There's very clear directions for the guru and for the prospective student. And Swami Vivekananda gives very clear directions. And all of those directions are based on two things, Shruti and Smriti, meaning revealed scriptures like Vedas, Upanishads, Agamas, etc., and Smriti, exegetical works based on those Shrutis, which we're going to talk about a bit more in our lecture today, um, because that's what the Vedas, I'm sorry, that's what the verse we're talking about is going to be about. Okay, now, so this lecture on one on one level is going to be about gurus, um, choosing a guru and not being swindled by a guru, as per Lina's question. But another part of this lecture is about our own sadhana. Whether we see ourselves as a teacher, we never should, or as a student, like at the very least, we all of us here identify as spiritual practitioners, right? All of us here are on the path and we're interested in sadhana, in genuine spiritual practice. That means we must also be very vigilant for falls, for pitfalls, for um, getting sidetracked, for at the very least wasting time, if not harming ourselves and others. So these Failures, these falls can happen. And today we're going to talk about why they happen and what we can do to prevent them from happening. Kind of an interesting lecture, right? So there are two parts of the lecture. One is about gurus and one is about not falling. Notice how they're related. Uh, A fallen guru is necessarily a bad guru. So really the heart of the lecture is how to prevent yourself from becoming a fallen yogi. Whether you identify as a teacher or you should never, or whether you identify as a student, at the very least you identify as a yogi. And as a yogi, you should ask, how can I, what is what is it to fall? What is it to go astray? And how can I prevent that? That's what today's class is about. Okay, are you excited? I am. I think this is such a cool topic. Okay, let's get into it. So let me maybe just put the verse in the chat. As you know, this is one lecture in a series on the Narada Bhakti Sutra. We're about 12 verses into the Bhakti Sutra. Maybe I'll just chant the opening three verses so you get a, a taste for our text. Our text is, you know, it's self-styled as a text on devotion. About how to develop, um, <laughs> how to develop. Yeah, can you imagine your heart? Ankit is joking here. Imagine if your 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 heart surgeon said, Satchitananda alone is the good. <laughs> Maybe. Oh, look, Chandraji is showing, showing something so beautiful. Look at this big mala here. You see what a beautiful mala. Wow. Good, good, good. Okay, thank you. Jaima. beautiful pond. Okay, so diving right in. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, uh, shout out speaking of gurus, shout out Sai Baba. This is off the uh, <laughs> statue here. And they we were cleaning up and they're like, Can you throw this away? And I was like, no, no, no. <laughs> I would have done san- it, but, you know, I should have obeyed my guru. But um yeah, here it is. <laughs> jai Sai Baba Ji Ki. Jai, Jai Shri Guru Maharaj. <laughs> Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah, so. Um, guru yoga, but also how to prevent a, a fall in yoga. The Bhakti Sutra, notice it's it's a it's a text on devotion and how to cultivate love for God. But as we've been studying it, we notice that it's so much more. It's like how the Bhagavata, you know, the Bhagavata Purana, that famous Vishnu uh, Purana. It's, a, it's like a Vaishnava text. It's about Krishna. And uh, we think it's going to be all Bhakti, Bhakti, Bhakti. And then we read it and oh my God, it's full of like Sankhya Jnana Yoga type stuff. And it's full of meditation raja yoga type stuff and as my guru likes to joke as he was teaching us that text he goes this one is bhakti book he'll say because it doesn't seem like that sometimes it seems like a jnana book or raja book understandably none of these are different like raja jnana bhakti these path of devotion path of knowledge path of meditation they're all just inflections of the same thing these demarcations are not real actually so that's why a bhakti book, if it's called a bhakti book, will have in it so much to do with meditation and philosophy. And that's why if you pick up a jnana book, it'll have so much to do with, in some sense, bhakti and in some sense, meditation. So these are all just different ways of looking at the same thing, spiritual life. So necessarily, if we take up the Narada Bhakti Sutra, we expect to find the same. It's a bhakti book, but in it, we're getting so much... um out of it, like from a non-dual Jnana point of view, from a Raja Yoga, Sankhya kind of view. So necessarily, it's going to also give us instructions like the kind we're looking for today, how to identify a correct guru and how to ourselves prevent falling and becoming fallen yogis, right? Fallen yogis are a danger to themselves and to others, whether or not they identify as teachers, whether or not they have any students, right? Okay, so let's start. Now, you know, the first verse of the Bhakti Sutra, Om Atato, Bhaktim vyak yas yamaha. And now there is to be an exposition on bhakti. Bhakti meaning devotion. But what is devotion? The second verse will tell us. Sa tu asmin parma prema rupaha. It is like rupa parma prema, superlative love or supreme love, for what? For this, tu asmin. So that sa, that bhakti, is like rupa parma prema, love times a million, right? we'll need a kind of karunama cat meme here because there's no way to express what what this love looks like except with a with a cat meme so maybe karunama will show us but this super love that we feel for what well he doesn't specify as you'll note in the text he's carefully leaving out any gender so the Sanskrit here is non-gender, tuasmin. It's in the neuter, neutral. So therefore, this could be God as the, the father, God as the mother, God as the friend, God as the child, or it could be God as the formless absolute, or it could be the Atman, the self of the Advaita Vedantin, or it could be the Shiva endowed with Shakti of the Kashmir Shaiva, like whatever, what have you. So bhakti is developing love for that, supreme love for that. And interestingly, in the third verse, we get perhaps one of the most important statements in the bhakti literature. Amrita swarupacha. And moreover, that bhakti, mark this closely, is the ends. It's not the means, it's the ends. So it's a tradition where the means and the ends are the same. To love God in and of itself is the goal of loving God. Isn't that beautiful? It's enough to love. God is love, as Swami Vivekananda said. So it doesn't, actually in some sense, it doesn't matter what you love. In the same way you could say in Vedanta, it doesn't matter what you experience. The experiencer and the experienced can both be dissolved into experiencing. I know that sounds pretty um, subtle and kind of cool, right? It Basically, the, the formula is anubhavam matram brahma. Brahman, the absolute non-dual pure consciousness, is experiencing. It's not the experiencer. It's not the experienced. It's the ground in which experienced and experiencer have their being. So it's like, not even to say a relational property, but it's the quiescent ground, The the substratum, out of which the experience of seeing and seeing arises. Similarly, love is like that. You, know, you say, anubhavam matram brahma. You could also say, premam matram bhakti. Oh, bhakti. What is bhakti? Bhakti, by definition, bhakti is love alone. Not lover or loved, but love. So it's not about you, the worshiper, or about even God, the worshipped. It's about the love that exists between the two of you that in many ways connects you, identifies you with one another, and dissolves both of you into that love. So that experience, that unitive experience of love is bhakti. Hence, Swamiji says, God is love. Anywhere you see a kitten nursing its young, stand and pray for you are in the presence of God. Swami Vivekananda said, right? So love is God. So notice in this third verse, Amrita Swarupacha, it's clearly stating that this bhakti, not only is it a supreme love for, for this, this being whatever you want it to be, but that love itself is the point. And accordingly, that love is liberation. It's by definition, liberation. He who loves God is free. In fact, I would even say that he who loves, he who truly loves is free, but only he who loves God can truly love for God is love, right? So this is our text. It's a bhakti text, but now we're going to get into verse 12 and 13, which gives us some insight into something that doesn't seem to be like directly related to bhakti, but it is. So let's look at verse 12. I'll put it in the chat. You know what typically happens in these classes? I'll start to recap the verses, verse one, verse two, verse three, and then I'll just like, get absorbed in one of these verses, and we never make any progress whatsoever really in our (laughs) class. We just talk about the same verses over and over and over, and I'm not even sorry, because each verse can be like understood in so many new and exciting ways. So let me just put this verse in the chat. Remember, I'm having a little bit of problem with the compound consonants in Sanskrit, meaning in, in the sense that when I put it in the Zoom, it's kind of like, it's becoming a little weird on the Zoom the compound consonants aren't really like showing up. So I'm just gonna, you know, try my best here and see what it looks like. So here we go. Verse 12. Okay. Let's look at it. Bhavatu. Bhava. Bhava means emotional mood. So bhavatu becomes nishchaya. Nishchaya means without doubt. Nishchaya. So without any uncertainty. So without uncertainty, without doubt dhar dhyat means like well established it means grounded like sure you know urdvam after shastra means scriptures and rakshanam raksha means protection so in the puja class yesterday karunama was there but we had a puja class about ghosts and we were looking at the mantras related to exorcising ghosts you know The mantra, like, you know, Om Apasar Pantu Te Bhuta Ye Bhuta Bhuvisangsitaha, like that. And there's a mantra that comes right after it, where you take Gyoni Mudra, and you you spill water out of your clenched fist on the floor, and you say, Om Raksha Raksha Hung Vat Swaha Raksha Raksha. Yeah, absolutely that ghost class, it's totally recorded and you can, I i haven't uploaded it yet, but it was like, I'm going to call it our Ghostbuster special. We didn't really talk about the mantra or the mudras. I mean, we were supposed to since it was a puja class and all, but we really just spent the time like telling ghost stories and discussing the metaphysics of ghosts. Like to what extent are ghosts just psychological forces? To what extent can psychological forces like depression or um, laziness be, I don't know embodied as spirits that one can see and uh, we, that was yesterday anyway that word raksha raksha means to protect raksha um, but it can also mean to observe or to like um go along with or to adhere to so this phrase this is very very important um verse because here's what it says if we're going to translate it it says only after urdvam so urdvam sorry only after one becomes dhardhya, well-established, only after one is enlightened, truly, without a doubt, uninterruptedly established in their spirituality. Until then, uh, urdvam uh, beyond that, beyond uh, or, or until then, um, one should follow the scriptures. Shastra, meaning scriptures. Rakshanam, one should either protect the scriptures or follow the scriptures or conform to the scriptures or adhere. To the scriptures. Nishchaya, without a doubt. Um So essentially, until one is established without a doubt, one should follow the scriptures, right? Yeah, sorry. I just heard a noise and I was asking if Hannah was okay. Anyway. <laughs> Okay, good. Now, until one is established without a doubt, meaning until one is permanently abiding in a state of realization, whatever realization means to you, maybe here in this context, it means bhakti, until one is fully established in all-consuming, uninterrupted love for the divine, until one is absolutely absorbed absorbed in and identified with that love, one should follow the scriptures. In other words, one should adhere to rules. Okay. So let me explain a little bit what is meant by this verse. So Sri Ramakrishna often gives a distinction between Gauni Bhakti and Prema or Raga Nuga Bhakti. So Gauni or Vaidhi Bhakti means devotion with rules. So this is like, Um, a formal devotional practice in which you do puja at the appointed hour in the appointed way. So you might learn puja from your teacher and you might, you know, learn the structure of puja, puja being, of course, tantric ritual worship. You might learn the appropriate mantras. You might learn how to pronounce them, where to say them, when to say them. You might learn the appropriate mudras and you just basically you learn the structure of the puja and you do your best to adhere to that structure as prescribed by the shastras. Now, when it comes to tantric ritual worship, we know that the shastras in question are the tantric, or the agamas so the agamas they teach us these pujas you know they teach us yoga they teach us um uh achara they teach us uh basically they teach us how to worship that's principally the job of a tantra not only to provide a metaphysic but also to provide a practice and typically in the shastras you know tantra shastras that's going to be some kind of ritual practice using mantra uh sacred invocation, using mudra, hand gestures, hasta mudras, and also bodily postures, using sacred visualization, even using diagrams like yantras, you know, those geometric diagrams. All of that is going to be prescribed by the tantra. So as long as we're following the prescription, as long as we're performing our puja as per the direction of the shastra, that's called gauni or vaidhi, Bhakti. Bhakti here means devotion. Gauni from the root guna, meaning with attributes or with qualities. Vaidhi from vidhi, meaning injunctions or rules. So vidhi bhakti means bhakti with rules. Gauni bhakti means specific prescribed forms of devotion. And that, of course, will be told to you by your guru and will be given to you by the shastras, etc. So there's like a time and place, right? We're supposed, for instance, take we're supposed to take a bath before we do puja. So we do that. According to the rule, I am to take a bath, so I do that. I go to the Ganga or I go into my shower, second best thing, and I come out and I do my puja. When do I do my puja? Well, my guru told me I have to do it at this time, so I do it at this time. Maybe dawn or in many cases, dusk, the, the sandhya. The dusk puja is very important. So now as the sun starts to set, it's time to do the arati, the dusk arati, like that. So you might observe arati. Now, of course, in every spiritual tradition, there are observations like this. You know, the Vaishnavas, they'll observe a fast day on the 11th day of the moon, ekadashi, the 11th day. Dasha meaning 10. So one and 10, ekadashi, meaning the 10th day of the moon, cycle. sorry, 11th day of the moon cycle is when they fast. So, and they do different kinds of, some do fast with fruits, some do fast with just water, some will have fruits and milk, and, you know, there's ways to kind of hack it, like sneaky ways to not really fast, but by buy the book, still fast. You know, there's so many ways, but your you're pres- there's a prescription. The prescription is if you're a Vaishnava, you fast on this 11th day. Now, Shaivas, they might say, oh, my prescription is I must fast on Monday. Okay, I'll do that. I'll observe a fast on Monday. Christians might observe Lent. Muslims might observe Ramadan like that. Um, Shaivas might observe shivaratri. Tonight is shivaratri, not maha shivaratri, which happens in like February, March, but shivaratri nonetheless. It's the 20th day of the moon cycle. So tonight, some Shaivas might be keeping vigil. So they might not just be fasting, right? Many Shaivas today are fasting, but um, some Shaivas might be fasting and staying up all night meditating. So this is gauni bhakti, bhaidi bhakti, because there are rules, there are prescriptions. And a Shaiva or a Vaishnava or a Muslim or a Christian, whatever they might be, will follow the rules as prescribed by their particular Shastra, by their particular doctrine. And that's very good. There is a reason why those rules are there. So again, let's refer to last week's lecture. We talked about scripture, right? The scriptures were compiled by people who are not out to swindle you, hopefully, at best. And most of the Indian scriptures, um, both Buddhist and Hindu, as well as Jain and others, they've been, you know, over 5,000 years subject to a commentarial tradition, a comparative peer reviewed like environment in which we can vet them as having no agenda. They're not interested in any missionary work. They're not out to convert you. They're simply out to explain universal spiritual practices. Insofar as the scripture is not out to like trick you or take your money or anything, you have to trust that their intentions are good. And that means the sages are giving us rules and prescriptions probably also for our own good. So if they're saying do puja at this time, it's probably because through this corroborative, peer-reviewed scriptural tradition, that's the time that the sages have decided is best for puja. If they say do puja in a certain way, there's probably a reasoning behind that. And hopefully your guru is able to explain that. Ideally, we don't accept any rules that is not immediately, at least somewhat understandable. It's not that we have to hold, some rules are just, we will never understand them until we develop the level of like psychic sensitivity to see why, like food rules, for instance we'll never really understand why we shouldn't eat this way or eat that way until we get to a certain level of meditative certainty. So I'm typically very hesitant about food rules or, or any rules that cannot be justified at least to some degree on the basis of reason. So hopefully your guru doesn't just prescribe rules, uh, doesn't just like throw the book at you, but your guru can actually explain the rationale behind those rules. So if we learn puja and we say, okay, we have to do this mudra over the water, you have to ask, what is this mudra? Oh, it's denu mudra. Okay, what is denu mudra? It's the cow udder mudra. Why am I holding a cow udder over the water? Well, because I'm visualizing the flow of celestial milk into the water. Why am I using the mantra vang? Well, according to Abhinava Gupta's Tantraloka, a shastra, there in verse 116 in book one, he says that labial sounds like ba and va, sounds involving the lips are very powerful when it comes to um, visualizing water or nourishment or fluidity like that. So yeah, if rules don't make sense, well, they should, right? And as Anthony is pointing out here, the kosher rules never made sense to him until he learned pranic healing. In other words, until he deepened his spiritual practice and achieved a level of sensitivity, he was only then was he able to say, oh my God, there's that makes sense. There's a reason why I shouldn't eat certain things. So anyway, one should not force it, right? One should like get to the point where these rules are not only intellectually understandable, but also in many ways, like directly experientially understandable. You like know from your abilities or not abilities, but sensitivity, why this. Anyway, even short of that, you should just trust for at least a working faith, just to begin with, that these rules are there not to like harm you. They're there to help you. And so the Christ often said, man was not made for the Shabbat. The Shabbat was made for the man. In other words, your Japa is there for you. Uh, You're not there for the Japa. Your mala is there for you you're not there for the mala. Your puja is there for you. You're not there for the puja. Your rules are supposed to set you free. You know, you know what's funny? Freedom doesn't come from impulsively doing what you want. Freedom actually comes from the opposite. It comes from restraining yourself and restricting yourself. Take the case of a musician. If a musician wants to like really freely express themselves on stage, like say a jazz saxophone player, if she really wants to like rip into a solo on stage in a 12 bars blues progression. You know, she's going to have to spend hours and hours and hours at home practicing scales ad nauseum. So she's going to to say, look, I could be doing anything now in this next hour, but instead I'm just going to sit here and I'm just going to do my scales. You know, I'm going to do my scales over and over and over. In other words, she's binding herself. She's restricting herself. She's committing to a, a rule. And you know, her teacher might tell her that her teacher might say, look, If you want to get to a certain level of musical proficiency, you're going to have to practice scales this many hours a day. In fact, you should first practice your sight reading. Then you should practice your scales. Then you should practice improvisation. And she just follows what the teacher tells her, hopefully because she can see the reasoning behind it. And then one day, having committed herself to such a rigorous discipline, she feels finally free to express herself on stage. So the more discipline you have, the more commitment to a restriction and a regime, the more freedom, ironically, you tend to experience. It's true for art, it's true for music, it's true for anything, especially spiritual life. So these rules, although they seem restrictive at first, they're meant to help you, they're meant to free you. So therefore, Shastra, scripture, whether that's the Agamas or the Tantras or the Vedas or the Bible or the Quran or the what have you, um, these scriptures, they're called in this verse Shastra, as you can see in the verse, and Rakshanam, Shastras, are to be protected In other words, they are not to be desecrated or made light of or cast aside too early. A person who says, okay, I've gone beyond the injunctions too soon is in grave danger, okay? Now, they are not to be treated lightly. They are not to be cast aside. They are not to be irreverentially handled. Um, That's why last week I said, always beware of gurus who talk uh, down on Shastras, who say, oh, it's just books. It's just baloney. Be very careful. Because as I said last week, that's a guru who is avoiding accountability. Given that the Shastras are a peer-reviewed corroborative account of masters all across different spiritual traditions, if your guru is truly a master, his, her, or their account of their own experience should be in keeping, generally, with the experience of spiritual masters of a like kind, right? So if they're throwing away all of these books, then essentially they're saying my idiosyncrasies alone are valid and not the 5,000-year-old peer-reviewed corroborated evidence provided by this scriptural scientific tradition. You know, like, no, be careful of a guru who throws aside scripture or doesn't cite scripture or doesn't at least explain to some extent its value in spiritual life. But also beware of the guru who limits you to scripture and says your whole spiritual life is confined by scripture. Eventually you must outgrow it. So Swamiji here, when he gives this talk about this verse, I think, at the Thousand Islands Park to a group of very intimate disciples, he of course invokes Sri Ramakrishna's example of the sapling. So when the sapling is very young, you must fence it around. Otherwise, you know what will happen? The goats will come and chew it all up. Or or, or cows will come and step on it. Or people will come and like pluck it. Or, you know, some of you people do puja. You go out and pluck all your neighbor's flowers. I know because I'm like that too, but I'm learning. I'm getting better. No longer am I incurring such karma. You know, once I was doing that and I was running and I bopped my head and I was, I was like, oh, okay, okay, mom, sorry. A nice beating I got from taking flowers from other people's garden. So now see, I'm buying them. See all of those, none of those are stolen, okay? All of these are like properly purchased with the Patreon money. Do you see that? That's where the Patreon money is going. <laughs> it's expensive, okay? Like Trader Joe's, Whole Foods flowers, like, oh my God. <laughs> and, you know, we do a lot of pujas. So anyway, that's aside. side, flower story aside. Um, so Swamiji, he uses this example. If your sapling is very small, you know, dogs will piss on it, like all that stuff. He didn't actually say that, but. So what do you do? You set up a fence. You set up a fence to protect the sapling. What is that fence? It's the shastra. So the shastra, raksha, the shastra. The, the Yeah, please, I will. <laughs> I have to. Every time I visit your house, it's on your dime that I'm buying these flowers, right? You generous donors of the Sangha. Like I have no choice but to bring you flowers. You know, once we were going to the Kali Mandir and Tejas Ma was like, here, take my card for the flowers. And I'm like, Tejas Ma already did. Okay, so your donation this month, where do you think it's going? It's going to these these Kali Mandir flowers. (laughs) Anyway, so don't ever buy flowers for me, okay? You already have. Anyway, now, thank you, by the way. I'm very grateful. for A very small portion of donors in our community and the whole community is sustained by that small portion of donors. So it's like, nobody's like... Required to, right? Like all of these teachings are free and freely available to anyone and everyone, regardless of donation. But just out of the generosity and goodness of the people who do contribute to the Sangha, like it's like when you go to the party and you put some like something into the jar, like everyone's just going to get more alcohol, right? We're just going to be able to go to the liquor store and buy more. So like similarly, (laughs) we're just able to thank you. Thank you. Everyone appreciates it. Um, Okay. Most of all me, because I get to eat and stay in the house. So thank you. (laughs) So (laughs) aside, um, Thank you. Yeah, Chandra, Thank you. Thank you for everyone who's like, gets to enjoy our community. Thank you for keeping it afloat. It will be afloat anyway, because mother, you know, mother is here. Yeah. Yeah. I know the more prices, the teaching, the more people expect it to be given for free. And yes, it's true. Freedom gives unto freedom. But thankfully there are some people who like the hedge will perfect, protect the sapling and ultimately mother alone, God alone is working through all of these people to ensure that as long as something has integrity, it will stay alive and funded. Once it loses its integrity, then mother will like withdraw her support. So that's a fact, right? Like one should never be worried about finances. If you're sincere and if your heart is in the right place, surely the money that you need will come. And not only that, know from whom it's coming, mother alone, even though it might come through various channels. Typically uh, we understand there's only one donor. You know, and that's mother, and who is mother but me? We grace ourselves in a sense. Okay, anyway, that was a whole bit about the flowers. I digress. It's a bit of like a community message. <laughs> anyway, the flowers. So somebody might come and pluck it, or the so what is the, the, the fence? This fence, this rakshanam, this protection is the shastra. The shastra, what is the shastra? Right? The shastra is a set of vidis, rules, injunctions, techniques that are prescribed to disciples. Um, to be observed and to be followed for their own welfare, for their own. So if your guru says, okay, get seven hours of sleep or do your puja at this time or eat like this or whatever, that's because they know that your sapling needs some support. So if you get out of AA, by the way, like they'll probably tell you, okay, for a few years, don't hang out with your old friends and don't go to places like bars. Okay. Don't go anywhere where there's alcohol. You know why? Because that sapling is at any time at risk of relapsing. There's no fence. So, you know, the fence is withdrawing yourself from company and from, you know, places that could trigger you and send you into um, relapse. So although I have never myself been through AA, I have many friends who will like remark, this is one of the most important things they learned to stay away from their previous friends or their previous haunts, right? That's like, interestingly enough, a vidhi, an injunction from no less than Bill Maher, who, by the way, I think was like very, very involved in the Vedanta Center, both here and in New York, I think. So he used to regularly visit Vedanta Centers. It's kind of cool, right? There's a link between A and Vedanta in Bill Mayer. Anyway, so um, it's important to note here that there is a vidhi there too. The the vidhi is, you know, be careful, of, be discerning with your company and with where you do. It's the same vidhi as in spiritual life. You have to be discerning with your company and be discerning where you go because at any time, some scars can come back. I think Karunama was telling us a little bit about her experience at that rooftop bar. I don't know, maybe she'll tell us a bit about it later also. I think, where is she? I think she, oh, there she's gone. I don't know, the chair is empty. There she is. I was like, did she dematerialize? Is that what happens when your kundalini shakti goes beyond the crown of the head? You just, anyway, but yeah, like Karanama was saying in the check-in, you know, all of us, we have the experience of the, the, the energy of the space can be very influential. So similarly, the vidhis, the gaunis, I'm sorry, the vidhis and the gunas, this type of bhakti will protect you from that kind of thing. So the shastras are there to protect you. Okay. But Sooner or later, that sapling is going to grow into a mighty oak tree. So Swami Vekananda continues. And then that oak tree, now that thing doesn't need any more fences. Because no matter what, it's going to stand. Even if a rhino or an elephant were to come and like throw its shoulder against the tree, nothing will happen. So as Jess was remarking on Monday, there is a stage actually in spiritual life where you're beyond all harm. Nothing can happen to you. You can go anywhere and hang out with anyone like Jesus among the tax collectors, you know, whatever. You're so established. Now, the phrase for that here is nishchaya. Nishchaya means without a doubt. And dhardhyat. Dhardhyat means established, well-established. So only after, urdvam, after one bhavatu becomes dhyad dhat, dhyad dhat, established without nishchaya, without a doubt, only then does one transcend the shastras. But until then, until then, the Shastras must be followed. So in the language of Sri Ramakrishna, using this metaphor of, you know, the um, the sapling and the oak, there does come a time when you transcend Shastras. When? Sri Ramakrishna actually offers that very teaching in the very beginning of Swami the ji's gospel. You know, the first conversation that M listens to is Sri Ramakrishna explaining how um, the Sandhya merges into the Gayatri and the Gayatri merges into the Om, and Om merges into silence. He says, one must observe rules only... Uh, insofar as spontaneous, all-encompassing love for God has not awakened. Once that love arises, then the rules fall away of their own accord. So it's almost like um, the point of the rules was to create love. And once that love is there and well-established, you don't need the rules. Kind of like the rocket ship. Sooner or later, you have to jettison off that propeller. You know, you don't need it. Sooner or later, you have to graduate high school. But just because there is a time when you graduate high school doesn't mean you don't go in the first place. So this is typically what happens to people. They look at the end and then they think that that should apply now. In other words, they look at what great liberated beings are like and then they say, therefore, I can be that now without any help whatsoever. And that's in one sense true. From an absolute point of view, it's true. But most of the time, it's a recipe for disaster because we need a lot of support to actually honestly get to that place where we are well-established. And Sri Ramakrishna gives a great um, yardstick. He says, until the hairs on your flesh Until the day when it stands on end at a single utterance of a divine name, like Hari and the hairs on your body stand on end. Or Rama or Krishna or Kali or Jesus or whatever. The single simplest of utterances until the day that that has such an effect on you. Until then, you need to observe the Sandhya and you need to do the japa repetition. In other words, you have to follow the rules. So... The first point I wanted to make in this lecture is that there is a distinction between Raganuga Bhakti or Prema, supreme absorption in God, and Gauni Bhakti or Vaidhi Bhakti, that is devotion with rules, basically spiritual practice with prescriptions that are to be observed and to be followed. Okay, are we satisfied with that? That's the main point I wanted to make here. Um, so scriptures are to be transcended, but maybe for many of us, not just yet. Now it's going to tell us what happens if we don't obey that. So let me put the next verse, verse 13. Hey, look at that, friends. Two verses in one sitting. That's that's a lot for us. I mean, that's that's very lucky. You, you today Today's a lucky day. Because typically, it takes me like four classes, I think, to get through like one verse. And today, we're getting through two. Anyway, the reason why we're getting to, to do so much is because these verses, of course, go alongside one another. So let me just put that in the chat. Here we go. Okay, here's verse 13 following right after that wonderful verse 12. It says, um, Anyata patitya shankaya. So shankaya, shanka means um, the anxiety of or the fear of. Pa, you know the word pata, pata from shakti pata. Shaktipata means descent of grace, right? The fall. Oh, also Patanjali. You know the name Patanjali? Many of you are studying Patanjali Yoga. Patta Anjali means the offering that fell from above. Patta means to fall. So Patanjali, you know his backstory, his superhero origin story is that his mom was praying to Lord Shiva, and suddenly, literally from the sky, there falls into her lap this baby, who is of course the incarnation of Vishnu's serpent couch, right? Who had a vision of Shiva dancing the Tandava and now has come to teach Hatha Yoga. Uh, sorry, not Hatha, Raja Yoga. Isn't, you know that backstory? Anyway, he's Patanjali. He's the Anjali, the offering that has fallen from the sky, Pata. And Shaktipata, as you know, the teacher as a, as a conduit for Lord Shiva, Shaktipata can awaken through transmission, the disciple. That's also Shaktipata. So here the word Pata is not used so positively. Here the word Pata means fall, literally. Like to fall on your ass, like fall flat, like face in the mud, kind of like I fucked up kind of. Like that. that's the, the sense in which the word pata is being used here. Shanka means fear of. So anyata, otherwise, patitya, falling down, shankaya, there is fear of. So otherwise, there is a fear of a fall. Otherwise, meaning what? If you don't follow the shastras, if you don't follow the injunctions, the rules, the prescriptions, then there might be a fall there's a possibility or a fear of a fall. Okay, so what does verse 12 and 13 convey when taken together? That not only scriptures are really important, but the rules prescribed by the scriptures are supremely important until one is truly established and as such can go beyond them. Until that day, one must be careful and one must follow the instructions of the guru. If you don't, there can be a fall. What does a fall look like? You know, do we know? Um... And maybe some of you can tell us, we've all had a fall. I think all of us have experienced many falls, sometimes many times a day, sometimes one dramatic fall, sometimes several dramatic falls, right? What does it look like to fall in spiritual life? Now, a few things. It can look like, it can look like psychosis, certainly. It can look like too much energy, not being properly integrated, or it can look like immorality, right feeling oneself to be above the law and therefore exploiting one's students or seeing others as means to an end or feeling like a god and therefore can get away with anything which we saw in many gurus that came to america right it, so it could mean it could mean psychosis mental breakdown or it could mean an ethical moral breakdown or it could just mean wasting time so short of an ethical or energetic breakdown it could just mean like being complacent like not doing anything and not making any actual spiritual progress that's also in a sense a fall right backsliding. Like all of these are, I I leave it to your imagination. What does a fall look like? Obviously, it's going to be different for all of us, but whatever variety the fall comes in, it's a fall nonetheless, because it at the very least distracts you and delays you, if not totally throws you off spiritual life, right? Like it's it's one of those things that disrupts your progress and your path. So necessarily it's not desirable. Whatever it is to you, it's not desirable. We don't want to fall, right? That's one thing. So If you don't want to fall, it says one must follow the injunctions and prescriptions of Shastra. Otherwise, anyata, there is the shankaya, there is the fear of fall. Okay, so I'm going to leave it to you, okay, to like kind of puzzle out what a fall looks like. Maybe that's your study question for this week. What does a fall look like in spiritual life? I'm going to give you a hint though, because I want to come into the last part of the lecture now. So it follows from all of this that we need some kind of rules, at least until we're strong enough to go beyond them. In other words, essentially what I'm saying, friends, is that we all of us could use a curriculum. We could all of us use some structure. If I were to just like get to the essence of today's lecture, I would say this, structure, structure, structure. Discipline, discipline, discipline. There are certain times in which you do your practice and these times are not to be missed. There are certain practices that your guru tells you to do and this is not to be neglected. There's a certain way to do those practices, a certain moral disposition, a certain ethical conduct, and these are all to be observed. Essentially, that's what I'm saying. You need discipline, you need structure, you need rules. So where do you get the rules? From the Shastra, right? So last week, I launched into an extended defense of the Shastra. I was explaining why Shastra is not a matter of dogma, not just blindly following a book because someone threw it at your head hard enough to knock reason out of you. No, that's typically what religion looks like, right? Someone takes a big book and hits your head enough times with it until you just accept it. No, that's not the attitude. You can't be bullied into submission. You must, of your own free will, see the reason for something and then commit to it. It's, you know, it's a bad charioteer that bludgeons her horses in order to control them. No, she must skillfully guide them. So you can't just force yourself into rules that don't make sense to you. If, if they don't, By the way, this is a trick, right? If your rules don't make sense to you, you're probably not going to follow them. If your sadhana doesn't make some kind of rational intellectual sense, if you can't see the meaning behind your sadhana, don't do it. You probably won't stick to it. <laughs> so ask that of your guru, right? Okay, now I come to the, the heart of it. The guru. What is a guru? Now... In the last lecture, I told you all about Shastra, but hopefully you also got the sense that, damn, there are a lot of them out there. It's a wide world, right? Shastra is not just one thing. In the Indian sense, both Buddhistic and Hindu, and of course, also Jain. I keep saying both Buddhistic and Hindu, but I also mean to include all the other traditions, <laughs> Jainism, and all that. but Sikhism and you know, what have you, Brahma Kumaris, like all of that. But if you take all of it together, more so for Hinduism and Buddhism, of course, you'll see, and Jainism, you'll see. There's a lot of scriptures. What do I follow? There's so many different schools in Buddhism. There's the Mahayana and Theravada in schools. There's a Tripitaka, of course, the central three texts, but then there's also like exegetical texts by Songkapa in Tibet and Nagarjuna in India. And like, oh my God, is it Nagarjuna, Dharmakirti or Chandrakirti or Songkapa? Or like, you, you'll see stars. Your head will spin when you consider how much Buddhist shastra there is to study. Then when you look at Hindu shastra, you'll be like, once you look at a Veda, you're like, what the fuck is going on here? Right, it's like you won't even understand. The... And then you look at the Upanishad, then it's all. So you pick up the Brahma Sutra, which is supposed to make sense of the Upanishads, and then you get entangled in all of these technical, logical terms, these Nyaya terms in the Brahma Sutra. So you look at like Shankara's commentary, and that seems to confuse you more. And so, like, there's so many shastras, Shankara's, Prakrana or Vidya. Like, oh my god, you'll see stars. Your head will spin. Now, when you come to Tantra, don't even start. How many Agamas are there? And some of them seem to contradict others. So who will guide you through this absolute jungle and morass of scripture? That's all valuable. All scripture is valuable, but you can't do it all. You can't follow all the rules. You'll go crazy. So there must be rules that are appropriate to you. Who will prescribe them? In other words, who will give you the medicine based on your individual illness? You can't just scour WebMD if you don't know what your illness is. So ideally, a guru is one who can properly diagnose and not only that, properly prescribe. Prescribe here in the sense of streamlining the scripture suited to your individual needs. So for instance, your guru might give you a mantra and then tell you to chant the Chandi before doing the mantra. Why? Probably because you told your guru that you like Durga, right? That your Ishta prior to taking your mantra was Durga. So the guru then thinks, ah, okay, um, in order to integrate this new sadhana in her life, I have to make sure that she chants the Chandi. That will help her transition from Durga into the new Ishta to see that they're ultimately the same, right? So that's something that the guru might have told you and not anybody else. So you might meet a gurubai or a guru bhagani, a brother or sister disciple, and you might be surprised to find that they don't have to chant the chandi every day before they practice. That's just something your guru told you. Why did she tell you that? Well, because you needed that and not your gurubai or gurubhagani Your sister, brother, disciples didn't need it. So I have instructions from my guru that are unique to me right? Not because I'm special. Yes, because of, I know. because of my own individual illness. I have my own sickness and my guru, the, the doctor, the vaidi, he's going to prescribe for me that cure. That's not a cure-all, but it's going to be for me. And what cures me will harm another. And I've noticed that, by the way. I've gotten into um, trouble sometimes explaining my spiritual predisposition to those who have a different predisposition. We can do harm to one another, actually, because everyone's evolving on their own path, right? And so a guru's job is to know that. Now, in Sri Ramakrishna's case, he was very angry at Narin. So here's the thing. Narendranath had this like penchant for, I guess you could say, like just, okay, the sword of jnana can be very intimidating to bhaktas, especially. Gyanis are typically not intimidated by bhakti, but bhaktas are intimidated by Gyanis, And somehow jnanis, they never seem to tire of intimidating bhaktas. They walk around with a sword drawn and they they shake their sword at you and they say, wake up, see the truth. This is just moonlight. The moon does not issue light of its own accord. The sun, it's the sunlight, you know, like that. So what happens? Swami Vivekananda on Shivaratri, because it's Shivaratri today, I thought I I should tell you the story. On Shivaratri, he, you know, he's still Narendranath. He's not yet the famous Swami Vivekananda. They're just boys, right? And they're all at the house. I think it's Koshapur. Or maybe Shyampukur, I forget. But Sri Ramakrishna is convalescing from his throat cancer. So he's upstairs. And it's, of course, Shivaratri, So they're keeping vigil. Now, it's a storm. There's a storm outside. So imagine this scene. Storm is raging. The boys are sitting, I think, in the kitchen, all in like a circle. And they're meditating. They're singing. They're talking. They're observing vigil together. Now, Narendra, future Swami Vekaranda, feels a tremendous spiritual power in him. So now he wants to test it. I mean, he's a very scientific, rational kind of person. So he tells his brother and disciple, Kali, Kali Prasad, who would later become Swami Abedhananda. Touch my knee. So Kali Prasad puts his hand on Narendranath's knee. And suddenly, like electricity flows through Narendranath, goes into Kali Prasad, and Kali Prasad enters into deep samadhi. And he's just like sitting there stock still for quite a long time. Now, the headmaster calls Narendranath into the office. Sri Ramakrishna sends a disciple down and he's called up. He's in trouble now. He goes upstairs and Sri Ramakrishna knows what transpired. And he said, what have you done? You know, spending before you have acquired? This is very harmful. You could have thrown him off of his course. You could have done great harm to him. Why? Kali Prasad was like a bhakta. He was committed to the personal God, not the impersonal, formless, absolute of Swami Vivekananda. But Swami Vivekananda, through his Shaktipat, kind of like did something to Kali Prasad. And it's true. He did alter Kali Prasad's course. Kali Prasad later became one of the greatest non-dual bhakta's. I mean, great, great, like, uh, what do you call it? Non-dual um, disciples, Abhay ji His name even, Swami Abhay ji Isn't that interesting? So a guru, look, Sri Ramakrishna, as the guru in that situation, has to know the individual path of each person. Uh, Turiananda, Swami Turiyananda, Hari Maharaj, he came as a jnani. He wanted to study Vedanta, but Sri Ramakrishna carefully guided him away from that and made him a bhakta. Not to say away from that, but it just deepened him and taught him to be a bhakta. Now, Swami Prabhavanandaji, he was not given to ritual, but Swami Brahmanandaji, his guru, made him ritually chant the chandi. He said, be a little ritualistic. Swami Brahmananda is diagnosing Swami Prabhavanandaji and telling him to do ritual, even though that wasn't in his predisposition. Nandaji, Hari Maharaj, he was also told something that was maybe not his predisposition. So don't expect your guru to prescribe something that you expect to be prescribed. So you might think you're a jnani, okay? Your guru might differ. And like I'm thinking of Sarat, Saradanandaji, he wanted to have Ganesh as his Ishta. So he said to Sri Ramakrishna one day, I love Ganesh. Ganesh will be my Ishta. And Sri Ramakrishna said, no, 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 your Ishta is Shiva. Can you imagine? You tell someone who your Ishta is and they disagree with you. A guru can do that. And you trust your guru to do that. In fact, the reason you go to a guru is so that they can do that for you. Because we don't always know ourselves, right? So the guru will look and say, this is who you are. And so this is the prescription premised upon the Shastra. So here I'll make a very important point. Very rarely does a guru prescribe something that cannot be justified with an appeal to the Shastra. In other words, to protect yourself against the against the idiosyncras idiosyncratic, <laughs> to protect yourself against the idiosyncrasies of your teacher, you must be certain that your teacher is grounded in Shastra, that there is a scriptural basis, a citation for what the guru is asking you to do. The guru will never prescribe something that goes against Shastra, right? And if it seems to go against Shastra, the Guru must have a good justification for why it doesn't the guru should be able to show you that your understanding of that shastra is perhaps not deep enough. But assuming a thorough understanding and a proper understanding of shastra on your part, you should verify that what your guru is telling you to do is indeed vetted by this corroborated, peer-reviewed tradition called shastra. Cool, right? Do you see how they can check and balance each other? So the guru's role is to guide you through the shastra, is to prescribe and streamline the shastras for you according to your own constitution. However, you can check and balance against the guru using the Shastra to recognize that your guru is accountable. So therefore, I say, be very careful of gurus who don't abide by the Shastra, right? Or who can't be accountable to the Shastra or don't point you to the Shastra or, you know, that's one thing. Okay, now I want to end the lecture, but I want to get to one last bit, which I think is kind of cool. And that is about the moral character of the guru. Don't accept a guru who has financial gain to... Expect don't expect a guru. No, sorry. Don't accept a guru who expects financial gain for teaching. Right, this is very important. Why? Because being a guru is not a business. There's no business in spirituality. Honestly, though, what then do you make of dakshina? What then do you make of donations like that? Dhanam, right? Dhanam is a big part of spiritual life. There's a lot of good karma when you give money to. If you, if you really meet a holy person, you give them money, it's good karma for you, right? So, doesn't it look like there's some money involved? I mean, don't you, like I just said a few moments ago, is it money involved to run an ashram, whether online or in person? Is, money is involved when you need to feed people, when you need to buy flowers for puja. Obviously, money is necessary for the upkeep of the guru's family and for the gurukula. So, money is involved, right? But notice, very rarely, I, I, I hope never, is there any barrier, financial barrier of entry to the teaching? Why? Because the teaching is given from freedom unto freedom. The guru ideally is beyond all need for money, having sensed their innate freedom. The guru's wealth is their enlightenment. And if they truly are a guru of worth, that that should be like manifestly and demonstrably true. Meaning a guru should unstintingly give of their time and give their teachings uh, to sincere disciples, of course. Obviously, the guru might say, um, I have the right to refuse service, but not premised upon financial barriers, but premised upon a lack of fitness in the disciples. So certainly, yes, a guru can close their kula, can close their teaching, can oust disciples. Of course, certainly that's part of the pedagogy. But... Never for like financial reasons, like because the person isn't paying enough. Assuming the fitness of the disciple, the guru is beholden through dharma and through just love of the, the the craft to share anything and everything with such a fit student. So a guru must not be doing this for any financial reason. So you should see that even if donations are there, you should see that donations are not like, it's not contingent upon donations, right? Like you, you shouldn't feel as if like, oh, I can only get a teaching if I pay this much. No. That can that can never, because that, if that's the case, then it's a business and necessarily that itself is against the Shastras. To to charge for something that uh, uh, is spiritually beneficial to humanity is itself against the Shastras. So then how do we get around this insofar as we want people to value the teaching? Well, those who are really meant to receive the teaching, who will really benefit from it, do value it, and maybe they do donate right? Maybe they don't even, but that doesn't mean they don't value it. So if you're donating, it's really good karma for you, but it's not expectation. And if you're not donating, chances are you don't understand the value of what you're receiving, right? And maybe you do. Maybe there are some people who really do understand the value of what they're receiving, but don't feel the need to compensate or like place a financial, you know, label on it. Fine. That's fine, actually. But that has nothing to do with the guru. It's your karma. Whether you're donating or not donating, that's the that's the person's karma. The guru just does what they do regardless. And they do it as much as they can to as many people as possible, assuming fitness. So this is actually in the Shastra, okay? And of course, in today's modern world, we can ask, to what extent is that applicable right now? I mean, especially in America. I've had many conversations with my guru about this, you know, because we do this for free. Like this, these Zooms are open. And my guru would say, you know, we found that like, if you have a series, a 12 lecture series unless you charge a nominal fee of 5 or $7, very unlikely that you're going to have a follow-through. People will come for the first three classes and then you don't actually get to do your job and teach the 12 classes. And then I'm, you know, there's obviously a lot of room to make arguments and we can definitely have the discussion. But as Swami Vivekananda points out in his essay on guruship, it cannot be for any financial gain that a teacher teaches. So when you select teachers, using the Shastra, you should know that the teacher must be in it for love alone, in it for the sake of the craft alone. And that's something you, and Swamiji, you know, he used to test Sri Ramakrishna a lot, Narendranath, and Sri Ramakrishna encouraged it. He said, you must test me, my boy, as money lenders test their coins. That's the first one. The guru must be free of greed, free of acquisiveness. And the second one is way more important, friends. Please, if nothing else, take this away. A guru must be free of lust. A guru must be perfectly chaste. And I can do five more lectures as to why that's the case, right? But what does chastity mean? Well, for monastics, it means complete chastity. For householders, it could just mean fidelity to one's own wife. But in many cases, it it means also chastity. So Swamiji stresses this. In his lecture on guruship, he says, while most people um, should actually enter into conjugal relationships with their partners or what have you, it's especially important for the spiritual teacher to have some level of chastity at least moderation, if not total chastity. Now, he's thinking, of course, in terms of monks, because Sri Ramakrishna, it seemed as if his main helpers in the world were monks. Monks who were able to give their whole life to the mission. They're nothing else but the dharma. Jesus also made monks of his disciples. Like he had Paul and, sorry, before Paul, he had like Matthew, the evangelist. They, they didn't they didn't like have lives of their own. They were just, and maybe because they were the partial APO, they were the parts of the avatara. So Swamiji is thinking, okay, look, Being a spiritual teacher requires that you have a lot of Shakti. Shakti that you can use to awaken others. How do you get that Shakti if not through total celibacy, right? So celibacy is very important for monks. Yeah, and the idea of a world teacher. So obviously a world teacher needs so much more Shakti, they must have absolute like celibacy. And there's so many reasons for why, right? Now a householder guru, maybe the householder tantras, we know there are many gurus who've had children and it's very important that they did because they're not able to maybe serve householders as their guru, if they themselves maybe don't have children or don't have, I mean, there there's an argument for that, right? Swami Brahmananda actually has a son or child. I don't know if it's a daughter, but I think it's, a... anyway, Swami Brahmananda has a child and he had a wife, right? But he, of course, became a monk. However, I'm talking now about like Shambhunata, Abhinava Gupta's guru, who had a wife. And there are many gurus who have children, you know? So it's not like a guru must actually be sexually abstinent. In the tantras, we have many examples actually of gurus who are not sexually abstinent, but they are chaste. It's a very important point I'm making here. Follow this closely. Chaste in the sense that they are not at all available. And that's essentially what I mean. A guru, a person who runs a sangha and teaches must never at any point be available for their students, right? There should be no kind of like avenue in which the student or the teacher can enter into any kind of conjugal or sexual union. Right, And the Buddha was very careful about this, even amongst people in the Sangha, because the moment that happens, you know what you get? You get like a 60s Topanga Canyon house orgy situation where spirituality quickly devolves into hedonistic party culture, which is wonderful. Okay, that's wonderful. Do that. That's a valuable thing to experience and explore in life. But the goal of spiritual communities, if they are to stay to their ideals and be integral have to ensure that there's some level of seeing each other as spirit. In fact, in my house uh, household, like when we have gatherings here, I'm trying to deescalate touching, which I find in California as a big part of like California spirituality, long extended hugs and like, kind of like things that are really just lust parading as spirituality, which is fine. I don't mean to be like super orthodox. Or Basically, I'm saying, if we want to really live as spirit, we must see each other as spirit. And therefore, our practices and norms should respect that we are um, addressing each other on that level. Right. And we can make all these arguments here, of course. And I'm open to them in the QA. Perhaps you can debate me a little bit. Um, yeah. Right. Namaskaram. Is there a deeper hug than that to recognize that I and you are right now here and there here and now one? I have never felt more intimacy with any other person than just being me as pure consciousness. So then it's superfluous, then, right? The hug and the, the anyway. I can I can talk for hours about that. Any, but but I'm not saying this just, just because it's there in the Shastra, but also in Swamiji article. So in that Swamiji article about the Guru, he says the Guru must be perfectly chaste. Now I understand that to mean for monks, like actual chastity, right? That's the monk path. And for householders, chaste in the sense that at the very least they must be totally chaste to their partner meaning the only person that they ever enter into conjugal relationships is their partner with, is their partner. But importantly, the reason for this is because there cannot at any point open the, there, there cannot be any room whatsoever for their relationship with their students to change from being like, you know. um, Yeah, true. And you could say like gurus, the touching is kind of important because of like Shaktipata right like people sometimes but but there's still for many people like avenues for that to become exploitative so I essentially want to I, I, let's take that into the Q a because you know guru discussions are very important aren't they because they're, they're very essential to spiritual life and it's deep and nuanced but I just want to say this in closing so we can go into the Q a um whenever we've seen an exploitation in Guru yoga notice it typically happens because of three things one sex two money or three power these are the three ways in which a guru tends to exploit their Sangha or in which the Sangha tends to exploit their Guru. It's um, a kind of two-way relationship, right? So if it, if it's money, then you have a guru who's acquisitive and wanting more money than what is what is necessary to run the Sangha. As such, the guru will maybe start to like demand exorbitantly. And we've seen that happen. Now, in terms of sex, the guru will not see other people as spirit and start to see them as bodies. And essentially, the guru will start to become available, Right to their like not disciples but to their community and to their like that, Um, and finally power. A guru who goes around calling themselves a guru or, or making grandiose claims are in trouble. So Sri Ramakrishna often said, you know, the word guru in Sanskrit means a weight. If you put a weight on a scale, what happens? It sinks down. So whenever someone called him a guru, he would immediately recoil and say, no, 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 God alone is the guru. Although he never shied away from performing the guru function, he initiated people with mantras. He wrote mantras on their tongues and gave them experiences like that. So he did. He transmitted Shakti through touch. He transmitted Shakti through oral teaching. He guided. And every step of the way, he sculpted his disciples along their own lines of development, supporting it. But but he never liked to be called. So if anybody called him a guru, he would say, God alone is the guru. If anybody called him Baba, like father, he would say, how can I be Baba, father, when I'm a child of the mother? Like that. If somebody called him master, karta, he'll say, How can I be the karta, the master, when I am merely the machine, merely a pillowcase, mother is the operator. So notice Sri Ramakrishna showed us in his own life the absolute ideal of guruhood, which is total um, purity on, on every level. And also more than that, total humility. The guru is a servant, right? The guru is not a t- like the guru is not your boss or your commander or your like, like, you know, your it, even the word elder, I don't like it so much. Because there's a seniority there. The guru is like your baby brother, your like kid brother who, you know, like think of it this way. Your guru is your dumb kid brother, right? Who just knows to play a video game better than you. And you want to learn that video game. So you listen to him, right? Think of it that guru is your servant. He's a child, she's a childlike, he's a childlike kind of like, he's just, he's just your kid brother, okay? You know, he's just telling you stuff that he knows about because he's nerdy like that. You know, (laughs) like it's no big deal. Your guru is your servant now. God is your servant too. If you really met God, you'd see that she does everything for you. How Holy Mother would be up all night sweeping the floor because she didn't want her disciples to hurt their feet, their poor little unshrewed feet as they walked to come and see her. Can you imagine how she would wake up 3 a.m., very little sleep she got because she spent the whole day talking to disciples, and she would just like clean the street so her disciples won't hurt their feet. That's what God is. You know, God is not this like God is the servant of servants. And Sri Ramakrishna showed that. He always called himself the dust of the dust of your feet like that. So a true guru makes you feel big. A true guru is not one who makes you feel small and awed by their grandeur. Beware of those who lord it over you with your spiritual power. No, recognize a true guru because they always seem not only great, but somehow rather you feel just as great if not greater. Your guru should always aggrandize you not belittle you, not diminish you. Your guru should never see you as like an object of like sexual desire, nor should your guru see you as a financial opportunity or as a customer or as a business deal. If you feel like a customer, if you feel like you're being flirted with, or if you feel diminished and belittled in any way because of the intimidation of your guru's spiritual power, then what you have is not a guru. What you have is a fallen yogi. Because a yogi falls, and I'll close with this, because of three things, money, sex, power. These are the three things that causes a yogi to fall. So do you know what? You could learn chemistry from a fuck. Absolutely, you can. An absolute jerk can teach you chemistry. Why? Because knowledge of chemistry doesn't depend on living it. You don't have to live chemistry to know chemistry, right? But you cannot learn spirituality from a jerk. You can only learn spirituality. I I mean, you can. Mother can speak through anyone and anything, anytime. Everyone is the guru from an absolute sense, yes. But I mean, from a relative point of view, you cannot really learn spirituality from someone who isn't demonstrably through and through holy. And by holy, I just mean beyond money, power, pleasure. So when someone prays, you know, mother, don't give me bodily comforts. They demonstrate that they are like, just like, it, it, it matters nothing to them. They don't look at the world in terms of pleasure. Okay. And if they say, mother, don't give me money. I don't care for name and fame. It should be demonstrably true. They don't look to get praise or, or whatever. And then they should be able to say, I don't want eight occult powers, meaning I don't want to be powerful. Huh? I'm not here to be powerful. Okay, so all of that means you now have a very strong metric for gauging the um, quality of a teacher. And that can change, right? Yogis can fall. And why do yogis fall? Hopefully by the end of the lecture, you realize it's because of a lack of shastra rakshanam, a lack of following rules and injunctions, etc. So isn't that sweet? Let's close that. Yes, it all circles back to the theme of renunciation, which is true for everyone in spiritual life. Spirituality is renunciation in the deepest sense because renunciation is total freedom, a freedom that is established in total love. And if you mean to have spiritual progress, you cannot learn it from someone who doesn't demonstrate it, doesn't live it. You can, but to what extent? Only God knows, right? So I'll close with this. You've hopefully learned in this lecture, just to close it, that you have to follow injunctions and scriptures. Um, the injunctions laid down by scriptures, but how do you know which ones to follow and which ones to ignore? You know, because your guru is ideally the living embodiment of scripture, the kind of shepherd or Sherpa that can take you through the very overwhelming, sometimes mountain range of Shastra. But your guru is not only the, the, uh, the tool to understand Shastra, Shastra is the tool to check and balance and understand the guru. Above all, you must be true to yourself and to your to your reasoning. And above all, you must place your trust where trust is due. You know, so that's a very important thing. And I guess in closing, I'm trying to close for a while, but one good way to gauge a teacher is by their Sangha. You can often really, you can really tell the quality of a teacher based on, you know about Sri Ramakrishna because of Swamiji and because of his 15 other disciples, you know, and many more besides. So like that, you can often tell the quality of someone based on their surroundings, their company, do their flatterers around them? Who are they? You know, like, like stuff like that. Okay. So um, hopefully you can see in this lecture how Shastra is important. I think the greatest spiritual people I've ever met have been the most grounded, like normal seeming people. But in truth, they're anything but. The eccentricity though, the tremendous eccentricity is so profound that it's barely noticeable. Like a big elephant entering a big lake, the water is barely disturbed. Like that, the greatest spiritual masters that I've ever had the good fortune by God's grace to meet seemed like everyday, normal, ordinary people. And that was what was tremendously extraordinary about them. Right? Okay. May we all find such a one to teach us. Om Shanti 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 Harihi Om Tatsat Sat Shri Ramakrishna Rapa Namastu Om. Peace, peace, peace. May this be an offering to my Guru. All right.